Okay, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew. We've been in here for a long time. I think we're going to continue to be here for a long time. Uh, But we've broken it down into sub-series, if you will, so that we could, you know, more accurately cover all the content. Uh, We are in a series right now called The The Great Betrayal. Uh, And last week, uh, this is kind of strange because we're in a series that has kind of a series in it. Because uh, last week we started a message called Black Friday, right? And we discussed... Uh, the beginning of the last day of Jesus' physical life. And that began with uh, him being beaten and him being stripped, mocked, uh, and spit on by Roman soldiers in front of a cohort, so like in front of 600 other soldiers. Uh, And Jesus was actually beaten so badly, I don't know if you remember this, but he was beaten so badly, he was unrecognizable. They said it was even hard to tell that he was a man, was how bad he was beaten. Uh, And after the beating and the mockery, they made him carry his beam, or what would be the cross, uh, to the place of his execution. But because he had been beaten so severely, uh, he collapsed under the load. He couldn't carry it. So they made a man uh, named Simon from the city of Cyrene carry it. And Simon carried it all the way to Golgotha, which was where Jesus would be crucified. Okay, and that's what we covered last week. That's as quick as I can get us caught up. But today we're going to begin to discuss the crucifixion in great detail. Now I'm just going to tell you right up front, we will not finish it today. Okay, because I, I kind of waited out. We could finish it, and I could preach for two hours, or, or you could split this up. So I decided to split it up. If it wasn't football season, I wouldn't do that. I'd just go straight through. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, so we're going to start to discuss that in great detail, and we're going to look, and I want you to, to, to notice this because it's intentional, but we're going to look at a lot of information from all four Gospels. Okay, and the reason is there's such an amazing harmony of the Gospels, and that was uh, by God's design because God wanted to give us four different perspectives of the life uh, of Jesus Christ. And so when you read one thing in one gospel that is not in another, they're not contradicting each other. That writer saw something the other one did not, and that's why we have four gospels. So we're going to be looking and jumping around to a lot of different uh, passages in other gospels. Now, there's a lot of things I want you to take away from this. But, you know, one thing you have to remember is that the cross didn't make Jesus a victim. Because of the cross, he had victory over death. And the power of the cross is the fact that all who believe get to share in that victory. And we're going to see so much of that as we go through this message. But let's jump right in. Uh, And we're starting in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 35. And it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Uh, And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. Uh, And uh, above his head, they put up, the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, it's really important that you understand something. It's important that you understand the level of cruelty and suffering and pain that was involved with crucifixion. And I think sometimes we lose sight of just how horrid that actually was. Okay, so we're going to break that down just a little bit. Now, the beam that that Jesus collapsed under and that Simon carried for him was actually a cross beam. It would be the horizontal part of the cross, that bar that would go to the cross. That's what he was actually carrying, right? And, and once Jesus reached the place of crucifixion, here's what would have happened, okay? He would have been laid on the ground with that crossbeam, and he would have had to stretch his arms out, right? Not all the way straight, just to a little bend. And they would take five to eight inch iron nails and drive them through his wrists, Now, a lot of people believe, and a lot of the art shows us that it was through his hands, but it wasn't. 
because uh, the hand couldn't hold the weight of the body. It would tear through. So they had to put it through the wrist. So five to eight inch iron nails were driven through each wrist. Remember when I told you that they offered him a sedative and he refused it? Part of that sedative was to kind of keep him still while they did that to him because the pain was so excruciating, right? Then the crossbeam would be hoisted up by a rope with him hanging on it. Okay, hoisted up. And the vertical beam would already have been in the ground. Actually, that vertical beam was left there until they had to take it down. There were a lot of crucifixions that would take place on that same beam. They just changed the cross beam. But they would lift this cross beam up with the person who was being crucified on it, in this case, Jesus. And there was a notch cut in that vertical beam, just wide enough for the cross beam to set down into and being as cruel as they were, they would, they would raise that up over the vertical beam and drop it in. Not set it in. They would just drop it in. And the force of it dropping caused excruciating pain because it would tear the tendons and muscles in the wrists and the tendons and muscles in the arch of his feet. It would, it would tear that. Okay? And then his arms would literally come out of socket. Come out of socket when he dropped. And then they would make sure that they affixed that, that spike to the vertical beam so that, that he couldn't move completely when he was on the cross. Okay, that's just the beginning phases of it. Okay, it gets much worse. Now, the Romans used to put a sign on top of the cross that would say the name of the guilty party and the crime that they committed. So, for instance, if it would have been Barabbas, it would have said Barabbas, sedition, theft, murder. It would have said what they were convicted of. But if you remember from the trial he had with Pilate, Pilate didn't find him guilty of anything. He said, why do you want to crucify this man? I can't find that he's guilty of any crime. Pilate didn't find him guilty of anything. So Pilate had, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, placed on his cross. And if you read all four gospel accounts, you'll find that the sign actually read, this is Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Okay, that's what was written above there. Now, in John's gospel, we see that the Jews did not like what Pilate wrote at all. Okay, look at this. John chapter 19, starting in verse 19. It said, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Those were the dominant languages at that time. Verse 21 so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, Pilate did that on purpose. That was completely intentional, and that was his way of mocking them, of getting a dig in on the Jews. Because he was upset that not only because they wanted an innocent man to die over petty religious you know, differences they had with him and, and little grudges they had against him. That not only upset him, but it also upset him that they kind of pressured him into being the one that made the sentence because they kind of backed him into a corner. So he didn't like that at all. So this was a dig at them. Okay, he personally wanted them to feel a little embarrassment for what they had done and for trying to have an innocent man killed and actually succeeding. Now, here's the thing, and, and I know this is going to sound terrible, but, but, you know, stick with me. Um, what Pilate didn't understand was that Jesus was the guiltiest man he ever crucified. The guiltiest man he ever crucified. 
Now, he wasn't personally guilty of any crime. That's not what I'm saying. But when he went to the cross, he chose to take the guilt of the world to the cross with him. So he didn't carry a crime to the cross. He didn't carry a few crimes to the cross. He carried the guilt, past, present, and future of everyone who would ever live in this world to the cross with him. So he actually was guilty, just guilty of our sin. He carried our guilt to that cross. He bore the world's sin. Now think about this. Every sin ever committed from the past, every sin that was being committed, every sin that ever would be committed went with him to that cross. Isaiah wrote about that. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5, said, But he was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. You know, we need to remember that. No one is innocent. No one is righteous. It said, all of us like sheep, the dumbest animal out there just saying, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Okay? So, He definitely went to the cross guilty, just guilty for what we had done, taking our guilt with him. So there's something I want you to remember. I want you to think about this whenever you mess up. And and you know what I mean. You know that time when you do the thing that you can't stop doing, it seems like? You know what I mean? Everybody has that sin that they're going, man, why do I keep coming back to this? I hope you're not comfortable that you keep coming back with it. I hope it bothers you. But... When we keep coming back to that sin or we make a big mistake, sometimes we just feel like giving up. There are times I've talked to believers who have said, you know, I just, I feel like giving up. I cannot stop doing things I shouldn't do. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 7. But I want you to remember something. The cross has covered it. It was covered by Jesus taking it to the cross with him. All of it. Okay? It doesn't matter how bad it was, and that's hard for us. Because we look at, at you know, a murderer or different than we look at a thief. We look at someone who gossips worse than we look at someone, you know, who commits murder. I mean, we, we look at sin differently than God looks at sin. All sin, no matter how bad, was taken to the cross with Jesus. That means everything. That means that your addictions were paid for. They're already paid for. You just have to accept that payment. Your addictions are already paid for. Divorce, theft, murder, adultery, everything, every last sin you could commit has been covered. And believers, we have no excuse to give up when we sin. Because in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 9, he says, If any man will confess his sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive him or cleanse him of all unrighteousness. Now, why would John say that? Because every sin and the guilt of that sin was taken to the cross, all of them. Not just the ones up to that point, all of them were taken to the cross. So never assume that whatever your sin is, that it's bigger than the work of Jesus on the cross, because it's not. It was taken to the cross. So when you hear about the suffering that we're going to talk about today, it was intense. It was some of the greatest torture you'll you'll ever read of. He paid a huge price, and you're going to see why It's almost a mockery for you to believe your sin is too big for him when you see what he went through, what we're going to talk about. Okay, so let's look at that. Have you ever kind of wondered 
what a crucified person actually dies of. Anybody ever wonder that? I mean, and, and the answer is a little complicated because a crucified person actually died of one or a combination of three different things, generally. Okay? The first was constricted blood circulation. All right? This meant that uh, the blood in, uh, was restricted to the heart and the oxygenation of the blood was restricted and, and they could die of that. Uh, the second thing a lot of people died of on the cross was a lack of oxygen to the blood, which meant organ failure. Their organs would just fail on them. Didn't have the proper oxygen or, or blood moving around, so it killed them of that. The third is probably the most crucial, and, and this, I think everyone suffered with this, it was asphyxiation or suffocating. Okay, because when they were hanging on that cross, the, the, the fluid would start to build in their lungs. And it's basically like suffocating or drowning on your own blood. This is what people would die of when they were crucified. Okay, so what Jesus went through was no small ordeal. And the Romans were cruel because if death took too long, I mean, they wanted it to take a while. That's why they did it. But if it was lingering too long, what they would do was they would have someone go out and break their legs with an iron club. And they would do that so that they couldn't raise up and give themselves some relief and draw more breath. They would make asphyxiation happen sooner by breaking their legs to where they, and we're talking completely breaking them, to where they couldn't put weight on those legs and they would they would asphyxiate sooner, okay? So, I mean, this is, this is a gruesome death, terrible, painful death. And sadly, the Romans considered the crucifixion or any crucifixion just an amazing form of entertainment. They loved to watch it. They enjoyed watching it. This was entertainment to them. And if you knew their culture, you would see why. But here's what's, what's even worse is that the Jews seem to enjoy it as much as the Romans. We'll see that as we go throughout this crucifixion. Of all people, the people called by God's name should not be ones who love to watch suffering and death, but as you're going to see, they started to enjoy it as much as the Romans did, right? I mean, this is, this is unbelievable. And you see by some of the things we're going to read that, that it just didn't bother the Romans. You're going to see their callous nature by the way they treated Jesus when he was dying. The Romans actually weren't even worried about him. They were worried about who got his stuff. Can you believe that? They were worried about who got his stuff. Now, Matthew uh, didn't give us much detail about the soldiers dividing his things. Uh, Matthew says, Matthew 27, 35, it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Okay, but John gives us a really detailed account of what the soldiers did here. John 19, 23 it says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments uh, and made four parts apart for each soldier and also the tunics. That means they took his outer garments and they tore it into four pieces and split it. But then there was the tunic. And it says, now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. This means that it wasn't cloth brought together to make a garment. They took one huge piece of cloth and they, they actually made the garment out of one piece of cloth, which took a lot of talent. And it was very very valuable okay it was very valuable so verse 24 so they said to another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be uh, now think about this they were saying listen we can split all the other stuff up but it devalues it if we tear that let's just cast lots to see who gets the whole piece right and it says this was to fulfill scripture they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that's in Psalm 22, I believe, verse 12. So here's the thing. A seamless garment was really, really valuable. 
And they're like, listen, let's not be petty. If we tear that in pieces, it's not going to be worth much anything. So let's just, let's just cast lots to see who actually gets this. Now, this is ironic, but this is, goes to show you how people think. I've had people say, well, if it was so valuable, if it was so expensive, how did Jesus get it? I mean, he didn't have a job. He was traveling from city to city. How did he get it? But you may not like the answer, because this means that they even had to give back then like we ask you to give now. But Jesus was supported by a lot of people who, who believed in him. He, got, he received ministerial support for him and his disciples. And here's just an example of that. Luke chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own what? Resources to what? To support Jesus and his disciples. So this was their offering. How did he get it? It was probably given to him. He received support. They probably gave him that garment. Okay? Now, Roman soldiers were actually allowed, it was okay, to divide the property of the person being crucified. So they could actually, when someone was being crucified, it was like a garage sale to them. They just got to go take it. Right? Now, this seems callous, but that's just how they were. So they said, let's just cast lots for it. Okay, because they didn't want to tear it, right? Now, I want to cover this. It's kind of going off the beaten path, but I want to cover this because I am so tired of hearing this. Okay, casting lots, write this down somewhere. Casting lots is not the same as gambling. People bring that up all the time. They say, well, gambling, they gambled because they cast lots. No, they did not. See, in order for something to be gambling, the person doing it has to have the ability to lose something. They are wagering something that they have the possibility of losing. That's not what casting lots was. It was the modern equivalent of rolling the dice or drawing straws. You didn't have to wager anything. It's just, you know, picking it out. Whoever gets it the longest straw gets it or whatever. That's what it was. It was not gambling. I don't know why that bothers me so bad, but that just bothers me. People say, oh, they gambled over his clothes. No, they didn't. They had every right to have those things. It was like drawing straw, so it wasn't gambling. All right? And the, ir- the irony is, is they didn't realize they were actually fulfilling the scripture we talked about earlier. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. It says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, now, as we go through this week and next week, we're going to be referencing Psalm 22 a lot. It will amaze you how in detail that prophecy comes, uh, that comes from Psalm 22. It will amaze you. We'll look at that more as we go through the message, right? Now, the big thing that we have to know now, we see all this torturing. We see how they cast lots for his garments. We see that. But sometimes we get the wrong picture of what's going on. Listen, Jesus was not a victim. Did you know that? Jesus was not a victim, and we like to think of him that way. I think, as a matter of fact, we too often say Jesus was victimized. No, He wasn't. Jesus was not a victim. Because a victim is defined as, listen to this, a person harmed, injured, or killed as a result of a crime, accident, or other event, or action. Okay, so all victims have one common trait that Jesus just doesn't have. Okay, and that common trait is victims become victims by events that are outside of their control. Okay, they become a victim because they can't control what's happening in their life and they become a victim to something else. They always become a victim by something outside of their control. 
Nothing that happened to Jesus was out of his control. Nothing. Every bit of it was completely under his control because he could have stopped it at any time. Remember what, when Peter pulled his sword out and tried to stop them from arresting him and, and cuts off the, the, the guard's ear, I firmly believe he was aiming at his head and just missed. Right? But remember what he told him? Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53. He says, put that back. Put your sword back in its holster, basically. He says, or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father... And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So he reminded Peter, hey, this isn't a surprise to me. They're not getting one over on me. They're not defeating me. They didn't sneak up on me. Well, I knew this was going to happen. This is how it's supposed to happen. I want it to happen. Put your sword up. If I wanted them gone, I could have 12 legions of the heavens Hosts coming down here, armies that they would scare someone just to see them, they would fall lifeless. But I'm not going to do that, because what's about to happen, I want to happen, and it's for you. Okay, so he was all God and all man. He chose to accept the penalty for our sin. So he was not a victim. He chose this for us. And you can see how he has control in so many different scenarios. I mean, complete control. But the one that kind of gets me is he was in control of even when he died. Okay, here's what a lot of people don't realize. This wasn't the first time the Jews tried to arrest or kill Jesus. It wasn't the first time. This was actually the sixth time they tried to arrest and kill him. It was the sixth time they tried to get him. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief list of the other times and, and where it's found. I'm not going to read it to you for time's sake. But in Matthew 2.13, Herod tried to kill him when he was born, remember? Right? And then in Luke 4, 9 through 12, Satan tried to kill him. Right? In Luke 4, 28 through 30, the crowd tried to rise up against him and kill him. In John 8, 57 through 59, some of the people who had believed became angry with him and tried to kill him. In John 10, 39, again, the crowd rose up against him and tried to kill him. Okay? So this wasn't the first time. Right? And John chapter 8 makes it obvious that there was an appointed time that he set for him to die, and he knew it wasn't going to happen until that time. This isn't a victim. Right? Listen to this. John 8, 20. Uh, the words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour, what? Had not yet come. It wasn't his time. So they didn't sneak up on him. They didn't surprise him. They didn't shorten his ministry. Right? Everything went exactly as he planned it to go. Okay, he not only knew when he'd be arrested and killed, he also knew who'd betray him. He knew that. It didn't shock him. He didn't make a bad call when he picked up Judas. So many people are like, well, if Jesus is God, why did he take Judas? Because he needed somebody to betray him. He couldn't pick 12 good ones. Somebody had to betray him. So here comes Judas wearing a Baltimore Ravens jersey, and they said, there's the guy. No, I'm just kidding. Right? So he knew who'd betray him. He knew who would try him. He knew who would beat him. He knew who would mock him. He even knew who it was that was going to drive those nails through his wrists and through the arches of his feet. He knew who that was. Okay? And he chose for it to happen that way. So Jesus knew all these things because he was in complete control and he was not a victim. He was a willing sacrifice, and it's important that we look at it that way. 
Because it wouldn't mean the same if Jesus was trapped and forced to die for us, would it? He chose to die for us. He was a willing sacrifice, God's sacrificial lamb. Now, there's a few other instances where you can see uh, the control Jesus had over the situation, right? But one I want to talk about is some of the last actions he did before he died, okay? So he had two very important things he wanted to handle before he died, and he wasn't going to die until he accomplished those things. And the first thing was making sure that his mother was cared for. You know, sometimes I think we forget he was a son still, and he still loved his mother. So John 19, 25, it says, Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, it cracks me up that John writes that about himself. You know, when Jesus saw, it's like me going, when Jesus saw the good-looking redhead who was always doing what's right, this is what he says. He goes, which would be true. No, just kidding. Anyway, um, It said, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, talking about John. Uh, Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Okay, so he assigned the responsibility of caring for his mother. I assume he was worried for her. I mean, a lot of people were probably worried for her. I mean, they killed his son. Who's to say they wouldn't come after her, right? But so he assigned that responsibility of caring uh, for his mother to John. Because remember, being the Messiah didn't lessen his role as being Mary's son. He still loved his mother, and he wanted to make sure his mother was cared for. He was still a loving son. So that was one of the things he had to care for. We'll talk about the other thing he had to do, had to take care of before he died here in a minute. Let's take a look at this back in Matthew. Matthew 27, starting at verse 38. It says, At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. i got to talk to you about that. <laughs> wagging your heads. We still see that, don't we? I know you didn't. You know what I mean? <laughs> wagging your heads. The Old Testament says sneering. It was basically a mocking tone and mocking actions that they would have toward him. Is what that was. It was, it was uh, a way of, of demeaning or degrading somebody when you spoke to them. Wagging their heads. Okay? Says so, by wagging their heads and saying, "You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross." Now, let me pause for a second. Remember when they were talking about the temple, and Jesus said, "I will rebuild the temple." He said, "Tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days." He was talking about himself. He was the temple of God. But people heard it and thought he was talking about the Jewish temple. And that's what really made him mad. Okay, so this is, this is kind of a reference uh, back to that. Verse 41, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Okay, so another thing that crucifixions were famous for was it gave people an opportunity to publicly humiliate and ridicule someone. You were totally allowed to do that. You were allowed to go up to the cross and and mock them and ridicule them and say terrible things about him. That was something that just came with crucifixion. 
right? And as, as we read along, we're going to see that the Romans and the Jewish leaders both took great advantage of that, saying stuff. But I want you to notice something. Notice that the Jews and the Romans never directly spoke to Jesus in their ridicule. ridicule. Did you ever notice that? They never directly addressed him. Did you notice that? He says, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They weren't talking to him. He says he can tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. They weren't talking to him. Right? He says he's the son of God. Let's see if God rescues him. Does that sound like they're talking to him? They never directly addressed Jesus on the cross. Every mocking word that they spoke, they were speaking to the crowd to make sure they stayed riled up and didn't have pity. They wanted to keep them fired up, making mention of the things he was accused of so that they could keep them fired up and angry and keep them yelling. They never directly addressed him. So the crowd was incited to this by their leaders. They were incited to that. And you know what's strange about that is this same crowd that was saying, crucify him. Right? The same crowd that was, that was ridiculing him and mocking him just a few days earlier were praising him. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding a colt? Let's look at this. Matthew 21, 8. It said, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting down branches from trees and spreading them in the road. The crowd uh, going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These are the same people. Hosanna means save me. Now, how do you go from shouting, save me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save me, to crucify him and let his blood be on us and on our children? How do you, how do you make that transition? How do you go from praising to ridiculing, from love to hatred? And the answer is, it just shows you the power of bad leadership. That's the answer. And that's why your faith should never be based on someone else, right? You can see with Israel, that was kind of their problem. See, it was the Holy Spirit that encouraged them to say, Hosanna, or save me. It was the Holy Spirit that said, praise him, and that moved on them to praise him, that made them lay the palm branches down and lay their coats before him. It was the Holy Spirit that inspired that praise, but it was the Jewish leaders that encouraged them to reject him and crucify him and fired him up against him. Okay, so what does that tell you about who was influencing the Jewish leaders? It was the enemy. It was Satan. That's the influence they were under. Because think about this. Only the other team encourages you to do something against God. God will never do that. The Holy Spirit will encourage you to, do, to give God praise and to do what's right. They were encouraging them to do the exact opposite. And you know, I find this ironic because this is still true today. And you might think this is excessive, but oh well. And you might, you might think this isn't true, but just hear me out. This is still true today because anything anyone does that discourages faith in Christ is satanic. Anything that discourages you having faith in Christ or growing closer to God, anything that dissuades you from growing closer to God, any of that, its origin is the enemy. It's satanic, right? Because do you think the Holy Spirit's ever going to tell you not to get closer to God? Listen, there's only two teams on the field here. 
right? God's and Satan's. And if it's encouraging you not to be closer to God, you know which team that's coming from. Am I right? And we see it. I don't know if you guys have noticed it, but it really bothers me. Have you noticed that TV is really making faith look like it's the ignorant people who have that? Do you notice that? Right? They make a mockery of faith. They don't even want to say Merry Christmas. Even businesses are afraid to say that because somehow that's become an insult to say Christmas is about Christ or the Christ mass. You know? I mean, you see that on TV, right? You see it in movies. You see it in politics. Used to be people wanted to vote for the politician who had strong faith and was tied to God in a big way. Now politicians are careful to make sure they don't say too much about their faith. A lot of them will say a higher power. That way they cover the whole gamut. You notice that? That's not from God. That's not from God. You see it in politics. You see it in social media. There's YouTube videos about mocking Christmas and mocking all the traditions of Christmas. If you look, don't, but it's there, right? Science, I mean, it's all over. People in this world, this world in general, trying to dissuade us from having faith. Now, this is the one that's probably going to make people mad at me. Even religion kind of dissuades people from having personal faith. Did you know that? Now, hear me out. Hear me out on this. The world actually doesn't mind religion. They just don't like Christians. You ever notice that? They're fine with every other religious group. They'll find something good to say about all of them except us. Right? The world doesn't mind religion because, listen, religion is all about man's attempt to reach God. It's impersonal. It's about trying to find a way to hope that this cosmic being puts more good on the side of the scales than bad. That's what religion is about. And it's not a good thing. The world doesn't mind it. Religion's about keeping rules, right? It's about separating people by denomination. Have you ever noticed that? Religion loves separation. Oh, you're Catholic. I'm sorry, I'm not Catholic. I, you know, I'm, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Baptist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Lutheran. And they, there's like, it's like colleges going against each other, stealing each other's mascots and stuff. You notice that? I mean, religion says separate. You don't want anything to do with the Catholics. You don't want anything to do with the Baptists. That's religion. Okay, it's about appearing good, not being good. That's what religion's about. So that actually discourages true faith. Here's what faith is. Faith is about a loving God actually reaching out to man who could never make their way to him. That's what faith is about, right? It's about God loving us enough to send his son to go through what we just read to pay for our sins so that all we had to do was believe because he desired to have a relationship with us that much. Faith is about having a personal relationship. Faith isn't about being proud of being a Baptist or being proud of being a Catholic. Faith is about being proud of knowing Jesus personally, having a personal relationship with him, being able to talk to him yourself and believe that he's talking to you also. That's what faith is about. Faith is about unifying people. Jesus didn't come to separate people by denomination. That's religion. Jesus came to unify everybody under the banner of faith in Christ alone. That's what he came for. Okay, that's that's what faith does. It unifies people. It encourages honesty and purity. That's what faith is about. So if, if your faith is based on your religion, you miss the whole point of the cross. You missed it. Because the cross was bringing a personal relationship. Okay, now... 
Let me get back before I preach on that all day. But there's, a, there, there's one more important thing that Matthew left out here. Okay, something really important. Right before Jesus died. Matthew 27, 44. The robbers who had been crucified him, uh, with him were also what? Insulting. Insulting him with the same words. That is true. That is true. They were. But there was another thing that evidently Matthew didn't hear. Matthew records that, that those crucified with him insulted him, and that's true. Okay, but Luke includes some details that show the grace that Jesus displayed even when he was dying and suffering. Look at this. Luke 23, starting in verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, Now notice something real quick here. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him and saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. You know how they say you're guilty by association? Now, maybe the other guy started off by hurling abuse at him, or maybe Matthew just heard the one and assumed it was both of them. I don't know. All right? But he says, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, this is the other criminal, the other robber, answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we what? what we deserve for our deeds he'd accepted responsibility he said we should be here but this man has done what nothing wrong okay he said listen what is wrong with you we stole stuff we were busted we should be here he didn't don't you fear god verse 42 and he was saying jesus remember me when you come into your what your kingdom he believed that he was part of God's kingdom. He was the giver of God's kingdom. Verse 43, And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, underscore that in your Bibles, as many times as you can without writing over the next line. Okay? It says, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Okay, now, this is that last thing I told you. Remember I said there were two things he had to handle before he died. The first was caring for his mother. The second thing was this. This had to be taken care of, okay? This is the loose end that he had to tie up, right? Because this event, people say, what's the big deal? He just, you know, redeemed one man. Well, personally, I think that's a big deal. But beyond that, it, it, it shows us something that I think we miss a lot of times. Because this event proves that several religious practices that are accepted today as having to happen to have eternal life are baseless, Okay, because this man received eternal life. If you want to know what it takes to get eternal life, he got it. Let's see what he did and didn't do. He wasn't baptized. Anybody see him jerk him off the cross and take him to the River Jordan? No, he wasn't baptized. So that means you can go to heaven without being, right, because he said today, right? He wasn't confirmed, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a church member. Listen, this may sound weird, and some of you may have never ran into this i have i knew a church that even if you were a believer they didn't think you'd go to heaven unless you were a believer in their church and when you came to their church they'd make you get baptized again because the other one didn't count you know the other one didn't count so we know that baptism doesn't take you to heaven because this guy got there without it we know that being confirmed doesn't because this guy this guy got there without it being a church member doesn't matter he got there without it he didn't speak in tongues anybody hear that Anybody hear him speak in tongues real quick for you? No. So evidently you don't have to speak in tongues to go to heaven. 
And the list goes on and on and on. Listen, he didn't even have time. You ready for this, Baptist? Close your ears. He didn't even have time to show good fruit. Listen, a lot of the conservatives will always say, well, I don't know if he's a Christian. Let me watch his fruit. Who the heck are you? Let me watch your fruit. Let me put a U-cam and watch what you do when nobody's watching. I'll bet I'll see some rotten fruit somewhere. What do you think? This guy didn't have time for good or bad fruit. He was dying. He didn't have time. He didn't have time to make penance and go back and make it right with everybody. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that? Because maybe a lot of you are way better than me, but I would never have time to go to church, pray, work, eat, if I had to go back and make up what bad I'd done to everyone. Think about that. He didn't have to make penance. He just believed that Jesus was who he says he was and could do what he said he'd do. And as a result, Jesus says, Luke 23, 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, what? Today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. So, gosh, let's, let's use our deductive reasoning. So let, it, it stands to reason that when someone understands who Jesus is and what he does and believes in it for their eternal life, they have it. Am I right? Because this guy got it. Right? And he doesn't respect one person over another. So, the last thing that Jesus did before he redeemed the world was redeem this man. Now think about this. This should also tell us that there is no one that's not important to him. Every last criminal, every last murderer, every last sinner, which by the way, you still are after you get saved. That's another sermon. But anyway, means something to him and is worth his time. Because I'll be honest, I don't know how much time I would give him if I was in that kind of pain. He meant enough to him that he wouldn't leave this world until he redeemed him. He didn't redeem the world until he redeemed this man. And this last act of grace sums up his ministry, it sums up his teaching, it sums up his purpose. Because the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was not about religion. It wasn't about denomination, it wasn't about the merit system or legalism or bylaws. Right? It wasn't about any of that. It was about seeking and saving those who were lost. That's what it was about. I mean, and, and, I, and I, love, I love how Jesus summed this up perfectly in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That is the, the whole ministry summed up. His life, his death, his resurrection was to seek and save those who are lost. So if the number one priority of the Son of God, of the Lamb of God, of the Messiah, is to seek people out who need Jesus and bring them into the fold, what should our number one priority be? That. That should be our number one priority. Now next week, I'm going to have to stop here, but next week we're going to get to Jesus' final words, his death, and a lot of the events that happened around and after his death. And hopefully we'll get... All that in next week. If not, we'll do two more weeks. But I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm asking you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give a brief invitation, and here's why. We believe the Word of God's powerful. We don't believe that it's about who speaks the Word of God. We don't think it's about where you heard the Word of God. We just think the Word of God is powerful, and it moves in us. And if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, None of us can judge that by looking at you, but I do want to pray for you. And I'm not going to point you out, and I'm not going to chase you down. I'm not going to make you come up front. I'm not going to call you. I legitimately just want to pray for you because I've been there. 
And if you'd like me to pray for you and you're not sure, just make eye contact with me, put your head right back down. Bless those people, and I'm not gonna, not gonna point you out. Bless those people. Listen, if you're listening online, you're watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too, and I do pray for those people. But I also pray for believers because, listen, I just think we lost our way a little bit. I think in this world, going to church is enough, and, and, and that's not what Jesus came and died for, was to make sure we went to church. He came and died so that we could have eternal life and share that message with everybody. And so I'm going to pray that we get more focused. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do, and, and every week I say I'm just amazed that you could love someone like me. There, there are so many things I've done in my life that if disqualification were possible, I would be disqualified. I'm thankful that you love us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. I just thank you for everything you endured on that cross. And we know that that was because of your great love for us. And I just pray, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you or listening or watching who doesn't know you, no doubt there are so many reasons that the enemy is pushing into their mind right now why they should avoid having a relationship with you. God, whatever those reasons are, I pray you just move those out of the way, clear the fog, and let them remember that like this robber hanging beside Jesus, when we know who he is and what he's done, and know what he's capable of and believe in that, your word promises we'll have eternal life. I just pray, God, that they would lay it all down and trust him to be who he said he was and trust him for their eternal life. And if they make that decision, I just pray that they either contact us or contact a good Christian friend or organization they're close to so that they have a new family to walk with as they walk in their new faith. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, whenever we start to stray, let us look back at that cross. Whenever we start to lose our commitment, whenever we start to lose our fire, let us look back at the cross and see the love that you've shown for us. Let us remember that each thing you suffered, you suffered to guarantee we could have eternal life and let that inspire us to do better and to be closer and to be more passionate. We just pray, God, as we leave here, you would go with us and keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And Lord, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray, God, that we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory. You're so worthy of at least one more time. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.